0: Welcome to Tidbits of Research. My name is Sparanda Sandu. My guest today is Logan Schmidt, currently a curriculum developer at Smithsonian Science Education Center in Washington, DC. She did her undergrad at Wellesley College, majoring in biology and classical civilizations, and later did a master's at Boston College in secondary science education. She has over 20 years of experience in science curriculum development, science education, animal care, and field research. Logan Schmidt, welcome to Tidbits of Research. I'd like to start by hearing more about the work you do. You're a curriculum developer. What does that
1: mean, and what does that involve? Sure. Uh, So I work at the Smithsonian Science Education Center, which is sort of a small shop within the Smithsonian Institution, and my job is to be really curious about what everybody else is doing. And the reason that I need to be curious is because we produce curriculum for children, And so we weave what's happening at the Smithsonian into that curriculum. So before the project that I'm working on right now, which I'm happy to talk about as well, I worked on our Smithsonian Science for the Classroom. And I might get assigned a topic like, what do plants need to survive? And that's aligned to a science standard. And they're called the Next Generation Science Standards. So I find out everything I can about that standard. And then I think how does the work of the Smithsonian relate to what do plants need to survive? Who can I talk to? What exhibits can I look at? What examples can I bring in? So that essentially you're delivering the science, you're helping students engage with it, but you're also giving them the bonus of sort of like a virtual experience with the Smithsonian. Mm-hmm. And and a sort of backstage pass to the experts who work in these topics every day. Because there are people at the Smithsonian doing very specific work. (laughs) You can usually always find a Smithsonian expert that is doing something related to the topic that you're researching. I love that your job is to be curious. That's amazing. So I've been working in science education since I was 14. I'm 37 now. This is probably the best job I've ever had because it's a combination Of a lot of the skills that I've been trying to develop my whole career. And so I get to use the skills that I feel like I've got, but I'm learning new ones every day. So it's pretty rewarding. You were
0: saying that part of it was that curriculum development, but you're doing some other projects now.
1: What are those about? The project I worked on before was Smithsonian Science for the Classroom. The project I'm working on now is Smithsonian Science for Global Goals, which is a free, globally distributed and available community research guide which is aligned to the united nations sustainable development goals or the sdgs and the sdgs are a set of goals that the united nations came up with that essentially say hey if we all pull together and we work towards these goals such as gender equity or no poverty or safe infrastructure we might work towards a healthier and safer future for everyone on the globe And it's something that uh, the UN kind of checks against every year. So reporting out progress of individual countries. And so the topic that I'm working on is biodiversity. Which means I'm looking at sustainability goals that are related to life on land and life below water and thinking about what's on tap with the UN SDGs in terms of what's most important to accomplish and how can we both... like. Help students understand, hey, these are things we need to focus on, but what can you actually do in your community that's going to have a personal effect, it's going to have a community effect, and it may actually extend to having a global effect. Because it's one thing to just deliver science content, right? Like I can tell them, hey, this is what biodiversity is, and it's important. It's another thing to say, think about why biodiversity is important to you. And think about why biodiversity is important to your community and to all of us on the globe. And why is it important that you get involved? So it's more of a socio-scientific approach than just straight scientific.
0: That sounds really challenging. Did you choose to be (laughs) in this biodiversity project? Where you're like, yeah, I want to teach people about all of these personal, community, global (laughs) effects for this topic.
1: It was a pivot for me professionally. Um, So. It's an opportunity that came up and because I have a life science background, it was a good fit. And it has been one of the most fun challenges I've had professionally because I mostly think about things from a scientific perspective. It's been really fun to think about that socio-scientific perspective. So instead of going into the community and just counting all the snails that are there, the socio-scientific perspective is what do I already think and feel and value about the snails? What does my community think and feel and value? Whose voices am I listening to and who historically has not been listened to? Is there inclusion and access and diversity in my research team? So can everybody on my team do the work in the same way? And if not, what are some accommodations that we can make as a team? And how do I create solutions around biodiversity, for example, that reflect the community that I'm in? So I need to make sure that I'm actually asking everybody and really, really amplifying those voices that maybe haven't been heard before because those are the solutions that are going to stick if they really reflect the community that you want to enact the solutions in. Science has not always been really inclusive. It has not always been diverse and accessible. And so just thinking about those principles as you move through a science topic so that you're just a better scientist moving through the world. Have you
0: had to change any of the planning for all of this due to COVID?
1: Yes. One of our most recent global goals pieces of curriculum is called COVID-19, How Can I Protect Myself and Others? We wrote that in record time. It was a small team of us working really, really hard in a concentrated period of time to get a rapid response, concise module out there that helps students understand how am I feeling about what's going on What do I think about what's going on? And then I've noticed that there are changes. What is the scientific basis for those changes and the public health basis so that I can make a difference in my community? So for instance, I've noticed that everyone keeps telling me to wash my hands for 20 to 60 seconds. Why does my behavior need to change in this way? And understanding the science of how washing your hands can physically destruct that virus. And so if you know why you're doing it, you're more likely to actually do it. And so that module is a global goals module, but we had to plan for it to be done at home, facilitated by the students themselves or with their caregivers or whoever is in their household, and understanding that it may not be facilitated in a classroom by a teacher or that it might be virtually facilitated. And since we meant for this to be distributed around the globe, uh, it's translated into 24 languages, And we planned it to be a low resource. Not everyone is going to have access to pen and paper, running water, internet. And so we wrote it to be applicable to as many regions as possible.
0: So I guess in the planning of other modules, how much is it, well, it might just be that this module doesn't reach everybody, right? Kind of like a balance of decisions versus, well, it might not achieve all the learning goals we had wanted, but it's better for it to have a global impact.
1: Oh, so how do we decide? Yeah. That's a good question. Uh, The architect of this program is my colleague, Andre Radloff, and he's really good about reminding me. Sometimes we'll co-brainstorm and I'll say, I want to do this. And he's good about reminding, hey, let's keep it as agnostic as we can, because people can always get more specific in their region. A curriculum typically has procedural steps and they're either directed at the teacher or they're directed at the student. So you remember from being in high school um, that you would get an assignment maybe on a worksheet and it would have steps that you need to follow. So when we're writing those steps, instead of being really specific and me saying, when you go out to explore biodiversity in your neighborhood, I want you to go to this area and look for these organisms and use this method, I say, here's a collection methods that you can use, and you know your region better than I do. So you can plan. It results, we hope, in a more independent thinker anyway. So as a student who feels like this is my research, this is my project, I determined the protocol, rather than being spoon-fed science.
0: I was reading a little bit about the previous K-8 curriculum development project, and I was wondering if you could go a little bit into a little more detail into how one of these modules is created. Like, suppose we're trying to create a life sciences module. How do you decide, like, what should go in? What activities or exercises are appropriate? Is there some sort of, like,
1: trial run? Gosh, the process of curriculum writing. There's a a show called West Wing. Did you ever see West Wing? Yes. Okay. So, you know, when Toby and Sam are writing the State of the Union and everybody asks them, how's it going? And they say, you can't rush these things. You can't rush these things. Right. And Sam is explaining the process to that reporter from Vanity Fair. And he says, you take all these memos in, you write down all these ideas, you get together and you brainstorm, and then you realize that you're nowhere. And then you start over. That is a lot how curriculum development (laughs) feels is you research and research. You reach out to experts. So in my case, I talk to people at the Smithsonian. I talk to external partners. I was talking to submarine drivers from the Navy for my maps module because I wanted to talk about undersea land formations because that's not something that students typically think about. You talk to a lot of people and then Because we write to standards, you take that next generation science standard and you pick it apart. So what are all the components that are included in there? What do you really want students to be able to do by the time they finish your module and you start working backwards? It's like pieces falling from the sky and then somewhere in the middle they assemble into a tableau that makes sense. It's very poetic. (laughs) Thanks. You've got to make sure that the pieces that are filtering down, so the interviews with the experts, the examples from the natural world that are going to help this make sense for students, they're called phenomena, all of that stuff. And then the requirements of the standard filter into some kind of cohesive storyline that is going to feel natural for the student, but then also for the teacher to implement. So you try and sometimes you're nowhere and you talk to your colleagues. We collaborate a lot then you write a version you field test it in schools and you get wonderful blunt feedback from teachers and from students i had a student tell me in my maps module using sand is pointless and it was a great piece of feedback because the sand that i had supplied them was too large grain they were practicing drawing symbols in sand to mimic a traditional method of map making and they couldn't do it because the grains were too large so we switched to a finer grain sand much better experience.
0: That's one of the questions I was going to ask, which was, what is the feedback that students are giving you?
1: It's incredibly helpful. I I was lucky enough to see some uh, some of my curriculum field tested here in the DC area. And so getting to walk into a class where what you've written is coming out of the teacher's mouth and the students are receiving it in real time, nothing can replace, first of all, that feeling of Like, I'm going to vomit nervousness, but then also a deep validation of, hey, if this worked, that's something that I wrote that worked for that child, and that's incredible. They will give you feedback to your face, especially elementary students, which is wonderful. It's very helpful to see what's their attention span, what catches their interest. Penguins work almost every time. So I've learned that, which has been great because I have tons of photos and videos from my work. So
0: I want to talk more about this because one thing that I liked was that the learning goals were so explicit in reading these. So like, I guess these are called performance expectations. Yes. I have the challenge of I want to build a habitat for salamanders so they're no longer killed on roads. And then you kind of tell them that the scientific relation to that is, you know, scientific problems are defined in terms of constraints. What is the process of kind of linking these?
1: So you usually start with the standard that you're trying to hit. And and you're saying, how do you choose which activity you're going to link with that? Yeah. Okay. So there are two major groups of, of standards that we would try to achieve. And and one is that design-based or, or trying to design a solution for a problem. That's more of an engineering standard. So... Habitats is a great example of weaving in sort of your standard scientific content, so understand what a habitat is, how it gives an organism what it needs, but then incorporating those engineering standards of how can we facilitate a solution? So if a salamander needs to get from point A to B, what can you do to make sure that happens safely? And then there are more of your basic scientific standards, and so less of the engineering and more of like thinking about a scientific principle or problem. So for the maps module, it was maps can represent different kinds of land and water. And so what can students engage in that helps them understand, first of all, and this is where the breaking down comes in. What are the kinds of land and water on earth? They have to know that first. They have to know what a map is, and then they start to understand that maps can represent land and water on Earth. So they're learning about symbols. They're learning about imagery as a representation of something else. So that's what a symbol is. But they also need to understand what they're trying to symbolize. So do they know all the kinds of land and water? And when you're thinking about how to take students through an activity that's going to get them to the place you want them to be, you need to think about where students are already. Because if you ground it in the student's experience, they are more likely to stay engaged with the topic. So you start by asking, have you ever seen a map? Have you ever used a map? Why do you use them? And you sort of create this arc of like, this is how it was in my life. I'm gonna explore some other stuff, but we're gonna keep that thread in mind that like a map helped me understand something else. So that's what we'll return to over and over, because that's something that they may already know. And
0: a really interesting thing in all of this is that you're aiming a lot of, of this as children, but you're also aiming at whoever is kind of facilitating this for them. How does that blend
1: in? So how do you write for students and for teachers? At the same time, yeah. Well, a really good thing to do is to make sure that you are having sort of regular observation of a classroom, an actual classroom, so you, you know who your audience is in both respects, so the students and the teachers. I have a Master's of Science in Teaching from Boston College's Lynch School of Education, which I would love to plug. That school of ed is amazing. I also really love that Peter Lynch funded a school of ed and not the business school. It's really cool. And so getting that formal training in how do I design a lesson plan, what do teachers need, doing the student teaching myself, and then just staying in classrooms, so doing classroom visits, it helps you be familiar with your audience. But then in practical terms, we have a teacher guide and we have student-facing materials. And so you are really writing for two different sets of folks. For global goals, we're not. It's a community research guide, which means it is meant to be used by the students, but it can also be read by the teacher. And so you need to provide enough detail that somebody can facilitate it effectively, but you need to keep it as simple as possible so that the students could read it themselves and facilitate it themselves if they needed to. Like Especially with the COVID module, we could not count on a teacher walking them through that module.
0: So at Boston College, right, you worked in educating both students and teachers in field ecology. What was your project like?
1: Sure. So when I got accepted to the Lynch School of Ed, I said, I'd really love to come and I can't afford it. And so the admissions office was kind enough to recognize somebody who had a lot of hunger for the the degree, but maybe not the financial backing. And they gave me tuition assistance by way of working for a professor, And the professor was Mike Barnett, and he was working on an urban ecology textbook. It was part of an NSF grant. He wanted it to be freely available. He wanted it to be something that was really relevant to students who were living in urban areas who maybe felt like, gosh, every time I look at a biology textbook, I don't see my area represented. And so we talked a lot about how can we craft a free textbook (laughs) that is going to have activities and topics that are relevant to an urban ecology viewpoint. So part of that was writing for students, but we also did training programs during the summer for teachers. So a lot of Boston public school teachers or local teachers to that area, including bird bioacoustics. And that was probably one of the most fun summer jobs I've had. (laughs) Is you're training teachers how to use this sound recording technology. So, these microphones that can record bird songs. But we also had Boston Public School students in with the teachers. And so they were learning this technology as well. And the best part was that they would come in after a couple of days of doing this and say, Oh, I heard a robin. I heard a crow. I heard, um, you know, a European starling on my way in. And they were just noticing the world in a completely different way. One
0: can't do all of the work that you've been mentioning unless they, like, love science. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. What made you decide this kind of direction was how you wanted to share your love for science with others?
1: So I know exactly who to credit. Although, gosh, there are a lot of people I should credit, starting with, like, my mother. So sorry, Mom. (laughs) (laughs) When I was a senior at Wellesley, I thought because I'm a bio major and I was also a classics major, which was super fun, but wasn't gonna be my career. I thought I will get my PhD because that's what science majors do. And so I applied to all these PhD programs. I had these grand plans of continuing some of my penguin research that I had been doing at the New England Aquarium. And I went on visits and this very lovely woman, her name is Dr. Dee Borsma and she is the penguin expert. She's at the University of Washington. She flew me out there to do an interview, and I cringe when I think of how like inexperienced and naive I was about the practice of getting a doctorate. But her department very nicely interviewed me, and she let me stay in her home, and then she made me a mango smoothie and said, you are not going to get into my program. But I would like you to be a field assistant for one of my graduate students who's going to the Falkland Islands over the Northern Hemisphere winter, the Southern Hemisphere summer. And you're going to work with her for a couple of months researching penguins, and you're going to know if you really want to get your doctorate. And I went and I lived on that island in the Falkland Islands and researched penguins for three months, and I knew that I had to get this information to somebody else. That's all I wanted to do the whole time. I loved doing the research. That was a transformative experience in my life. Living on an island with two other people and hundreds of thousands of seabirds is great. I recommend it. But I wanted to talk to people about it. And so I came home, and that's when I started applying to schools of ed.
0: It definitely sounds like a transformative experience.
1: I've always said the only thing I like more than science is talking to people about science. And so that's why I have tried to put myself in a position in every opportunity to not only be doing something scientific, but communicating about the the science that I'm doing.
0: Well, I feel like this is the perfect spot to start talking about penguins. Oh, yeah. There's never a bad time. So you were a volunteer at the New England Aquarium, as you just mentioned. Did you have a pick at what you wanted to work with and you said penguins? Like, did you already have a love for penguins?
1: No, no, I was not interested in birds at all. I really wanted the giant ocean tank because I had just learned how to scuba dive. I studied abroad in Turks and Caicos and was doing marine ecology, tropical marine ecology. And I was like, got my diving certification. I'll work in the giant ocean tank. There'll be all the, the sea turtles and the fish and the sharks. And then they told me, yeah, that's full. So we're going to send you to penguins. And I was like, no, seabirds. And uh, I have not been able to quit them since. I mean, penguins, penguins are so physiologically delightful and weird that once you start to understand their whole deal, you can't not be obsessed with them.
0: So you were talking to people at the aquarium a lot about penguins. What is something that generally just, like, surprised people? Like, one thing that everybody was just left amazed by?
1: Okay, well, I think it's important to admit when you've been wrong. And I got a question once. So we would stand in the exhibit, so you're in a wetsuit, up to your chest in Boston Harbor water, and you've got a microphone on, and, like, 300 people are standing around the exhibit. And one person asked, do penguins have knees? And I didn't know. And the first rule of education is if you don't know, you just say, I don't know, but I can find out for you. But I was an 18-year-old. And so I said, no. And my boss, you know, as I was crawling out of the exhibit later, dripping with water, she was like, Logan, of course they have knees. And we looked at a skeleton together. And I realized that their, the way that their joints are positioned is that knee joint is so far up in their body cavity that we don't perceive it. Like we can't see that bend. And so yes, they have knees. Their bodies are structured for movement through water. So they are incredibly ungainly on land. That's fine, they're not hunting on land. So their structure is perfect for what they're doing at sea. And so some of their stuff is hidden. They need the feet that they have, they need the, the fusiform shape that they have. It is well-suited for the environment that they're in. And I was so embarrassed. Yes, peng- for the record, and to my old boss, Diane DiNapoli, penguins have knees. <laughs> so.
0: You also did some field research for Project Puffin. Yes. First of all, such a great name. How did you become involved in this? What were you doing? Was this... Because you also had to live on an island for this one.
1: I might be developing a trend. Yeah, I, I'm really... I got to tell you, there is something about... <laughs> going to an island with just a couple of people and a lot of seabirds that really helps you clarify your life. So Project Puffin, they're pretty friendly with the people at the New England Aquarium because obviously they have a lot of the same goals in mind. And many of the people who work with seabirds at the aquarium volunteer for Project Puffin because we have some of the bird handling skills that can be really helpful. We're also just used to being dirty and pooped on a lot by birds. Doesn't sound fun. You know, I got pooped on during presentations, and I think that was the worst, is you're standing there, you've got this professional knowledge, you're you're speaking eloquently, and a penguin just shoots guano right across your wetsuit. Yeah. But you get used to it. In fact, I remember I got the chance to go to Antarctica right before I started at the Smithsonian Science Education Center.
0: Oh my god. Yeah.
1: My old boss, Diane DiNapoli, who is a penguin expert, she was invited to be a guest lecturer on a cruise ship going to like an educational cruise ship going in Antarctica. And I remember she and I were standing out on the bow of the ship when we approached our first penguin colony of the trip. And that smell of guano hit us from across the bay. And I started crying because it smelled like home. It smelled so familiar and so comforting. It's like happening right now. I can. It's all welling up. You would think that you would love the smell of penguin poop. But, uh... You do. Yeah, it's, um, it has been a smell that's associated with some of the happiest memories of my life, which is so weird to say, but it's true. That's not what we were talking about, though. <laughs> that's okay. So Project Puffin, um, their goal is uh, to monitor the puffin population in Maine, but also to keep track of a bunch of other seabirds. So when you're on the island, your job is to Do a census, so how many chicks have hatched, how are they doing this year, and that's for puffins, guillemots, razorbills, terns. And then you kind of just count how many birds are on the island on a daily basis using your binoculars. You also keep track of what kind of fish the parents are bringing to the nest, so you sit in a blind with a telephoto camera, and every time a puffin lands, you've got like half a second to take a photo of what's in its mouth before it ducks into the burrow. And then you analyze those photos later and you say, okay, they're bringing back butterfish. That's not great. Butterfish are too wide to fit in a chick's mouth. But if they're bringing back, um, I think herring, herring is one of them. That's great. Herring are, they're going to fit right in that chick's mouth. They're pretty nutritious. So it helps you understand like what's going on in the sea right now. And the island we lived on, there are multiple islands within project puffin, but ours was uh, Matinicus rock which has a lighthouse that still functions, and a foghorn, which at the time I was there, I think went off every 15 or 30 seconds. No. And you would think you will never get used to it, but you manage to sleep through it. You pause in your conversation. You just don't even hear it. And one day we turned it off temporarily and it freaked us all out. Was it too quiet? It was too quiet. It was creepy.
0: I'm amazed that it doesn't affect the birds either, but I guess they just get used to
1: it too. I guess so. I think the Coast Guard recently has started investigating if they can make those foghorns sort of like an on-demand basis. So if you're in a fishing vessel and you're getting close to this island and you want to stay safe, you can activate it through a signal. I'm not sure if Matinicus Rock has been turned off yet, but I know they are exploring that for the sake of the things that are living on the island.
0: I want to piggyback on something that you were saying related to Penguin's Knees. Yes. And kind of go on a, on a broad idea, because you also wrote a piece for the Smithsonian Magazine on the role of failure and the value of persistence in science. Thank you for reading that. Like one oh. of five people who did um, Now, I mean, as a mathematician, I feel like embracing that is incredibly important, but it's hard to just instill this awareness of the importance of persistence in science for the next generation. Tell us a little bit about why this is so important for
1: you. Like, why did you want to write about it? I wanted to write it because I personally struggle with tying my value to whether I succeed or fail. So my value is tied to my failure or my success. And I don't think that that's a very healthy attitude to have if you're going to go into science, especially science research because you will fail. Um, and even in curriculum development, we write lessons that go over like a lead balloon. We made it too long. It's not of interest to the children. It's not achieving the, the cognitive goal that you had or the, um, the pedagogical goal. So understanding that it's a learning point, it's not a reflection on your value, and that it's just part of the process is that something I hope becomes a little more normalized. First of all, both in like classrooms so that students understand that. But I think we need to take that into adulthood. Mm. The problem is the system is not really set up to be gentle with that failure. And for, a, for an honest to God scientist, for someone who is like grant to grant and they're doing that doctorate and they're trying to get, you know, postdoc funding, their ability to make a living and to to persist in that field is going to be tied to their success or failure. And so it's competitive.
0: Because of this fast timeline, it somehow is inevitable that you tie your value and your worth to the work you do. And then when it's not working, it's like, okay, but this is all I'm doing. <laughs> yeah. What is left? <laughs> I want to continue with something that we were talking in actually the emails that we've exchanged. (laughs) Because towards the beginning of the email exchange, when I first asked you if you'd like to be on the podcast, you were saying, well, I don't necessarily identify with a researcher. And later, the discussion got a bit more nuanced. But what was the picture of a researcher that you had at that point when I first asked you?
1: (laughs) Sure. Um, Well, sometimes as a science educator, and I'm speaking only for myself, I feel as though... People may look at us as folks who couldn't do science, so we decided to teach science. And so when you said researcher, I immediately thought of a person who did get accepted to a PhD program in penguins and did, you know, penguin research, and that's a researcher. And in the science world, titles are really important. And so it gives you a lot of insight into that person's prep, their background, their expertise. And so when I hear researcher, I think of someone who makes research their life's work. And I just didn't include myself, which I think is a little sad (laughs) now that I'm thinking about it more deeply. Because sometimes it feels like translation work in that we are taking something that, for the scientific researcher, so for the person with the doctorate or the person with the master's who is in the wetland, doing the thing, and then publishing a paper about it. They know that subject so intimately, and they have such a grasp on it, and they're writing about it at such a high level. But there are principles in there that are really easy for other folks to understand. You just have to distill it down. And so my job is to try to get into the headspace of that person in the wetland, but extract the really important elements that are going to apply to other people's lives and teach them maybe not everything about the wetland, but enough that it either sparks interest or helps them notice their world in a different way. And so I need to research enough that I know it and I know what other people need to know. So in a sense, I am a researcher. I'm just not somebody who would probably pass muster in an academic setting. There is
0: something else that I wanted to ask, which is related to the Smithsonian work. You were a volunteer at the Butterfly Pavilion? Yes. What was the best part of volunteering at the pavilion? Did you have anybody freak out on you about things? I would freak out.
1: So this was at the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History. They have a butterfly pavilion that is part of the museum, and it's an enclosed structure. And you walk in through these sort of, Um, I can't remember if it's negative pressure or positive pressure, but you feel the air like rush as you move through this door because they're trying to keep all the butterflies inside. So it's this like very physical experience of even entering the space. And then once you're in the space, you realize it is enclosed. Like this is, I think the structure is meant to mimic a chrysalis. So it's like a a long domed structure. So some people walk in (laughs) and they have felt this rush of air It's incredibly hot and humid on purpose. And then you are swarmed by butterflies. Some people do not like it. Some children are like, deuces, I'm out. Like, get me out. And that is completely okay because that exhibit engages with your senses in so many different ways at once. But most people absolutely love it. And I think my favorite part is when you, so it's a timed entry. So you need to like move through. In about a half an hour, I think, is, is how they stagger it, or maybe it's 15 minutes. But sometimes you'll catch people really just sort of standing in one place and taking it in. So not necessarily looking for all of the species or trying to get a butterfly to land on them. They're just, like, breathing in and breathing out with the pace of the exhibit. And that is really beautiful to see. I think anyone who's a museum educator will say it's lovely when you see somebody just stop and be present with the material that the museum has provided. Because people on the other side of it work so hard to design exhibits that will catch your interest, that will give you the information that you need in the, in the split second that you're there. Like these people think obsessively about physical design, typography, the content. And in the Butterfly Pavilion, it's a, it's a chance to really pause And there's so much that's stimulating you, right? Like, you want to move around. You want to see the next thing. But these people who just stop and sort of let the experience come to them, it's so beautiful to observe. Well,
0: also, I think a perfect place for us to stop and kind of, like, sit in with all that we have (laughs) learned. Logan Schmidt, thank you so much for joining me. This has
1: been so much fun. Oh, it's my pleasure. Yes, I mean, this is literally what I do for a living, so.
0: Yay, talk about science. Yes. We rarely have this opportunity to really sit with our feelings, our thoughts, and be present, whether good stuff is happening or bad, and this experience of somehow finding the quiet within the almost overwhelming avalanche of sensory inputs sounds amazing. I definitely did not know that penguins have knees, and chatting with Logan did make me go on a penguin googling spree. I had so much fun chatting with her about field research, penguins, and curriculum development at the Smithsonian and I want to thank her again for chatting with me. I hope this conversation made you think about how you engage with your community, the nature around you, and how we think of research in general. Our music is Float and Fly by Goldgartelli. Thanks for listening. I will talk to you again soon.